I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 52nd part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that the idea of marriage is not to learn to fight well. The idea is to choose someone with whom a fight will be unnecessary. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this uh, 28th day of the month of November, the end of this month, and one more month to go. I'm not sure if it's four or five Sundays as I think about it. The first must be on the fifth, so it must be four Sundays more, and then we'll be in the year of 2011. And uh, our lesson for this morning is the 52nd part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender and the text is in the, sec- is the sixth chapter of the book of 2 Samuel and verse 23, which reads as follows. <clears throat> Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for listening to this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful an intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, Michael, the first wife of David, who was the greatest king of Israel, is the woman about whom we are concerned today. And in our last lesson, we recorded the fact that David consolidated the two southern tribes of Judah, which elected him king upon Saul's death, into one kingdom. David did not do this by military force, but by attrition. The military men that were loyal to Ishbosheth, which was Saul's son, recognized over time that Ishbosheth was little more than a puppet king, while David actually provided security for both Israel and Judah by taking on their enemies in battle. But David did not personally participate in the competition over the kingdom. David did not, did not incite any conflict, nor did he take any steps to secure his rule over the northern kingdom. 
Not only that, but David did not even reward those that took steps to secure the kingdom for him. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 2, 5, 6, and 8 tell us, Now Saul's son had two men who were captain of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Remnon the Beorite, Beothrite, the of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth was also part of Benjamin. Then the sons of Remnon the Beer, of Beorite, Rechab and Baana, set out and came about at the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed Ishbosheth in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana his brother escaped, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Now the two captains thought that David would think that they were doing him a service by killing Ishbosheth, thus making it possible for David to become king of Israel as well as Judah. They brought Ishbosheth's head to David to show their loyalty to him. But David was wiser than to see their actions as loyalty. David knew that these men were treacherous. If they would kill the current king to show their loyalty to David, they would also kill David to show their loyalty to the next fellow that came along if they had the chance. Now this situation between David and the men that killed Ishbosheth is a lesson for those with marital problems. These men killed their king to get another king, which is intellectually analogous to a person that divorces their spouse to get another spouse. Now it is very possible that if a man and his wife were having marital trouble, a woman could seduce the man or, uh, or a man could seduce the married woman. But if a woman other than his wife tried to seduce a husband, the husband ought not be unfaithful and ought not divorce his wife and marry the seductress, counting on the seductress being faithful to him once they are married. The seductress is likely to abandon her new husband to seduce the next attractive man that comes along just as she seduced the husband that she found attractive. And the same thing holds true in the reverse for men seducing women. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, a divorced person has broken their marital vows. But as long as they do not remarry, the possibility exists that they may have second thoughts about that which they would have done and return to their original spouse to fulfill the vows that they have made to God. But Jesus says that the person that marries a divorced person is committing adultery 
because although the divorced person may have obtained a legal divorce on earth, they made their marital vows before God, and by remarrying, they have broken their vow to him. If a person is willing to break a vow that they made to God, how could you possibly trust any vow that they might make? Any person that acts treacherously is treacherous, and you are not safe with them just because you benefit from their treachery. It is entirely possible that you will lose rather than benefit the next time they decide to do something treacherous. And as far as treachery goes, the statistics about divorce counselors is interesting. Divorce counselors are more likely to recommend divorce to their married clients than are even single counselors because once a person divorces, they tend to try to persuade others to join them in their situation to alleviate their guilt for having broken their vows. So a person that divorces is one that believes in divorce as a solution and will not hesitate to duplicate the process with subsequent spouses. Thus, Jesus tells us to not marry a divorced person. So, regardless of the problems in your marriage, don't seduce, don't be seduced, and leave other people's spouses alone. Proverbs 5, 15 through 20 tells us, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress. So David, understanding treachery, was not seduced by Rechab and Banner and did not look at the murder of Ishbosheth as an act of loyalty, but as that which it was, that being an act of treachery. Second Samuel 4, 9 through 12 records, but David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Remnon the Beerite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought, have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the man who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more... When wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own, in his own house on his bed. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed Rechab and Banna, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. But when Ishbosheth died by treachery, the kingship of Israel was open, and the people of Israel wanted David to be their king. David took the job and went to work. 
David defeated the Jebusites who occupied Jerusalem and took Jerusalem as his capital. David then defeated the Philistines in battle and then victoriously brought the Ark of the Covenant, which the Philistines had captured in an earlier battle, to Jerusalem. Now, the restoral of the things of the tabernacle to their rightful places for the worship of God was a source of great joy for David. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 records, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. But everyone in David's entourage did not focus on the joy of bringing the ark back to the tabernacle. 2 Samuel 6.16 records, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now David's joy, at being able to return the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle was such that he danced before the Lord with all his might. In the church where I grew up, when people became expressively emotional during the service, the old folks called it getting ugly for the Lord. And Michael did not enjoy it when David got ugly for the Lord because David was wearing a linen ephod, which exposed the lower part of his body as he danced and whirled before the Lord. So Michael was disgusted with her husband for showing his body to the crowd. But David had no thought of showing off his physique. David was only thinking of praising God for the mercy that God had shown him. From the confrontation with the giant Goliath, to his many days spent successfully fighting the Philistines, to escaping Michael's father Saul, from the days of his differences with Saul's sons Ishbosheth and his final, final defeat of the Jebusites to take over the city of Jerusalem and restore the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle. David lived the life of conflict even from the time he slew the lion and the bear while keeping his father's sheep, and the return of the Ark of Israel signified the consolidation of his kingdom and the culmination of his conflict. God made David the victorious king and blessed David that although he was victorious in battle against Israel's enemies, David never had to raise a hand to avenge himself nor to make himself king of Israel. So David had something for which to praise God, and David was not going to restrain himself. But Michael did not appreciate David's joy in the Lord. Second Samuel 6 and 20 tells us, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. But David did not accept Michael's rebuke. Husbands generally have a difficult time accepting a rebuke from their wives. Now, I was in a discussion group based upon a line from an article 
written by someone in an organization called Marriage Works, which read, the number one predictor of divorce is the habitual avoidance of conflict. And one of the lines in the article said, while it is true that we don't get married to handle conflict, if a couple doesn't know how or learn how to fight and disagree successfully, they won't be able to, all, to do all the other things they got married to do. Now, I took issue with this article in the discussion and responded, choose your spouse wisely, treat your spouse well. Choose to marry a mature person with whom you share a value system and the two of you should not have conflict with one another. Now, you may disagree on what color the, grape, the drape should be, but that's not conflict and it's easily resolved. Let the woman pick on that kind of thing. That's not conflict, that's a division of labor. But the key to the avoidance of conflict in marriage is in the selection process. Don't marry a woman who has to have her way all of the time or she feels oppressed. You will be able to discern that characteristic while you are dating her. Don't marry a man who is not loving and giving or who has to have things a certain way. You will be able to discern that characteristic while you are dating him. Spend your dating time getting to know the other person objectively without being sexual. Never assume that you will marry a person that you are dating even after engagement. You generally do not become sufficiently familiar with the other person to make a choice until you have gone through the engagement period with them. Wedding preparation often brings out the true colors of a person. You should actually make the decision to marry at the altar, and you should keep the option open to change your mind at any time before that occasion. So don't have sex with the person before you marry them. Sex causes people to lose their ability to evaluate the other person objectively. If you have sex with him or her, you will perceive a bond between you that is inappropriate and that you will find difficult to break should you find out that the other person is inappropriate for you. And don't assume that you have to marry the person because the dress has been bought and the shoes have been dyed. A dress and shoes cost a few hundred dollars. Divorce is much more expensive and your children will pay a greater price that can be counted out in money. Physical fulfillment can come later after you have determined that the other person meets your objective criteria. So the idea of marriage is not to learn to fight well. The idea is to choose someone with whom a fight will be unnecessary. Now, David, the shepherd boy who was devoted to God, chose to marry Michael, the king's daughter. Their marriage was a weird situation. Michael was initially married to David, then her father, King Saul, took Michael away from David and married her to someone else. 
Michael and David were only reunited after Saul died. And David did not woo Michael away from her husband, but Abner and Ishbosheth took her from her husband by force as part of a power play in which she was more a possession than a wife. She was the pawn in the play to overthrow Ishbosheth and put David in power in Israel. 2 Samuel 3, 14 through 16 records, So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, who I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband <coughs> went along with her to Barun, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. So their marriage is not one in which they shared background, nor was it one in which they developed a great deal of mutual respect for one another. Michael loved David for his masculine military prowess during their first marriage. But then, after David fled, Michael developed affection for her second husband. David then had Michael ripped from the arms of her second husband and restored to him, not for love or for affection, but as a sign of his conquest of Michael's brother Ishbosheth. In addition, at the time of this second marriage, Michael is one of seven wives and some number of concubines. David has so many women in rotation that he has a difficult time relating to any complaint that any of them might have. So Michael, who once loved David when he was her father's military general, and when she and David were each other's only spouses, now despises him after she has been taken away from her husband and brought into David's harem. Michael despises David and that about which David is enthusiastic, that being the worship of the Lord. But of all things about which to engender conflict, Michael has picked the wrong one. Second Samuel 6, 21 and 22 records, So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But for the maidservants of which you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Now, the problem with spouses managing conflict is that in marriage, the two are intended to become one. Conflict in marriage is analogous to a degenerative bone disease in the body, something that is causing the body to fall apart. To understand this point may require a change in your thinking, a paradigm shift. My point is that the key to marriage is proactive rather than remedial. You can't just marry anyone that stimulates your emotions. You have to make an intelligent choice. And God does not tell us to fight our way through marriage, but rather to love one another. 
listen to the attributes that God tells us to use to avoid conflict. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 8, the Bible says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And love never fails because the Lord Jesus Christ is always acting on our behalf to facilitate our keeping of his commandment to love one another. It may have appeared to the disciples on that Friday that Jesus hung on the cross that Jesus' mission of love was ineffective, but their perspective changed early on Sunday morning as Jesus' resurrection taught them that his love for us would never fail. So if in your marriage, circumstances cause you to think that you are failing, rather than creating conflict, I admonish you to remember to continue acting lovingly towards one another and allow God the time to do his work. Because God is promising you today that if you keep your pledge to always act in a loving manner, your actions, and your marriage will ultimately be successful. But Michael, who allowed herself to despise her husband, ultimately lost. As 2 Samuel 6.23 says, Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And either God shut up her womb or David never ever had anything else to do with her, but Michael was denied the pleasure of having a child and watching and nurturing her, uh, him or him, as he or she grew into manhood. M Michael never felt those little arms squeezing her neck and never saw those big brown eyes and heard that sleepy little voice saying, I love you, mom. Now, in Dr. Laura Schlesinger's book, In Praise of Stay-at-Home Moms, she publishes an email that she received from a woman that reads as follows. As I sit to write this, to write this letter, my hope is that if, we if one mother can hear what I have to say and holds her child just a little tighter today, I will have fulfilled my reason for writing. By the time I was 29, our family was complete. I had three beautiful children, a loving husband, and although never money to spare, we found ways to get by. I'd stopped working full-time and started part-time shortly after my first child was born because I loved being with her. And although I had my mother and mother-in-law to babysit whenever I needed, by the time my middle son was born, I knew that I could not work anymore. Something inside told me that I had to spend as much time with my children as I could. My husband worked extra hours. I made do with what we had, and we made things work for us. 
My husband would work at night or at home, but if there was a baseball game, he was there. I cut everyone's hair, including my own, did my own nails, and never bought anything that was not on sale. But we were happy. Now, there were many days when I was pulling out my hair, found myself screaming at them, and was totally exhausted by the end of the day, thinking to myself, any other work would be a pleasant relief. But there were also many moments I would never trade in for any job, no matter what the pay. Those moments when your child gives you a smile or a look you never forget. Moments where they would give you a kiss, a hug, or just hold your hand for no reason. Those are the moments a mother treasures in her heart forever, and they can never be replaced even by a grandmother. I was selfish. I wanted my children to know me, and I wanted to be that special person in their lives. And although I didn't know it then, and on certain days may have told you otherwise, my life was perfect. But maybe life isn't meant to be lived perfectly. Perhaps I took too many things for granted. But our life is no longer that perfect storybook tale. Two years ago, my middle son was killed in an automobile accident. He was 22 years old. He was away at college when he decided to get in a car where the driver had been drinking. Ten minutes later, he was dead. Our lives will never be the same again. The world as we knew it has been destroyed. We miss our son terribly. My husband, my surviving two children, and I will never be the same, but we are trying to hold on to one another and pick up the pieces one piece at a time. There is only one thing I can say. I am so grateful for those moments I had with my son. Those moments, the good as well as the crazy ones, I will forever hold close to my heart. All those precious years I spent with my son now are what helped me get through the day. So to all the young moms who feel they can't handle it, are struggling and making it through the day, who believe they need to work instead of being home with their child, just think how much it might someday mean to you to have spent those precious moments with your children. Hopefully you can just take my word for it. Don't let anything or anyone prevent you from holding them, hugging them, playing with them, memorizing their smile, their laughter, their heart. Our children are such special gifts that they should never be taken for granted. And life is so unpredictable, we never know if today we will breathe our last breath. Unfortunately for Michael, she never had this experience. Michael despised her husband and thus never had a son or a daughter. Michael went from being the king's daughter to being the king's wife, and she never had a material need. She lived in the palace and had the best of everything in the kingdom. But although she was a woman of leisure, a woman of privilege, and a pampered queen, she soon found that the material pursuits of the world did not satisfy. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 tells us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. It was a week ago yesterday when I stood on the roof of the Holiday Center City in Charlotte, North Carolina with my son, as I both reminisced about old times and sent him into his future with his new wife. I shared my experience of child raising with him. I said to him, sir, I want you to know that from the day I first met you and we first looked one another in the eye, that other than your mother, you have been and still are my favorite person in the world. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' father was looking at him as I am looking at you, as his father watched him for 30 years, during which Jesus always looked after his mother and Jesus always did the right thing. And after 30 years of faithful service to his family, Jesus' father sent him on a mission that would culminate in the salvation of the world. And as Jesus' father opened the windows of heaven and looked down through 42 generations to watch John and his son celebrate the ceremony of baptism on the banks of the Jordan River, he said to his son, that which I wish to say to you and this crowd of witnesses gathered here today, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Even God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, wanted offspring. Psalm 103 through 5 tells us, Know the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. We are God's creation. We are his people because he has created us. But God has a much more intimate relationship than that of being a creator. And it started with a woman who became a mother. As Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 35 tells us, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom 
there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One which is to be born will be called the Son of God. And the child with which the Holy Spirit uh, conceived was born of Mary. As Luke 2, 7 through 14 tells us, and Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And all of the great miracles of Jesus Christ, his walking on the water, his feeding of the 5,000, his giving sight to the blind and cleansing lepers, his great preaching and the repentance of the people of Israel, and even his sacrifice on the cross would not have happened had not a woman brought him into the world. And Jesus commemorated his birth even at his death. As John 19, 25-27 tells us, Now there stood around the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The fruits of the marital relationship is the great joy of life. Material possessions are fine, and it is wonderful to have them, but God tells us that the most important thing in life is love, and love is best expressed in our marriages. God does not show us his love by giving us possessions, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, but God loves us through his son, the fruit of the womb, as John three sixteen and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God does not show us his love through the things of the world, but through the ministry of his son, 
the fruit of his womb. So let us emulate his example, eschew conflict, and love our spouse and our children. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we thank you for the love that you showed us when you anointed a woman to bring your son into the world. And you sent him among us that he might walk among us for 33 years doing nothing but good. And at the conclusion of a perfect life where he healed the sick and raised the dead, gave sight to the blind and cast out demons, he went to the old rugged cross and gave his life. They broke his body and he shed his blood that our sins, though they be many, might be forgiven and that we might have a right and a just right to the tree of life. And then you admonished us to love one another, even as you have loved us. So help us, Lord, as we go down from this place to not have conflict with one another, but to love one another, to be patient and to be kind and to love one another as you have loved. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place. And then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.